Coming up on Tech Nation, we look at treatments being worked on for a wide variety of medical disorders. Dr. Stuart Campbell from Axial Therapeutics addresses their groundbreaking work in autism-related irritability in teenagers, in Parkinson's, and in complementing the latest cancer treatments. Then, turning IV drugs into pills for diabetes and obesity, and for two pulmonary and cardiovascular disorders. And these are just their first candidates. Dr. Ray Stevens from Shouty Pharma tells us about their approach. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Daniel Leviton, the author of A Field Guide to Lies. I asked him, in this information age, we now have big data. We've got big data analytics. Do we also have big lies? Well, I guess we do. Um, people are getting away with bigger and bigger lies, it seems. And they're, I think what I'm mostly interested in is that there's more and more false information than ever before. That um, misinformation and pseudoscience seem to be proliferating like there's no tomorrow. And I think the problem with that is that misinformation is promiscuous. It just ends up in all different kinds of places. You don't know where it's been. You don't know where it's going. Don't or touch who, it. <laughs> exactly. And you don't know who it's going to be with next. Exactly. You know, I, I wrote this book as a very practical guide. There's not any theory in there, nothing about what the brain's doing when this goes on. It's just these are the steps to follow if you're above the age of 12 or so. And you want to know how to make sense out of things. It's it's what we would classically call critical thinking uh, that most of us haven't been trained to do. Uh, lawyers, scientists, journalists are trained to do it. But the rest of us are often left at the mercy of people who are really good at spinning a story or taking advantage of us. Elementary school arithmetic. Add up all the percentages on the pie chart. They're supposed to equal 100. Fox News got it wrong in your example. Yeah, they published this pie chart of who was supporting whom in uh, the uh, Romney presidential election. And you look at the numbers, and they add up to way more than 100%. Now, I can imagine how that happened. It might be they asked people in a poll, who do you support? And people were allowed to give more than one name. But then don't make a pie chart. <laughs> There's a problem with averages, isn't there? An average is a distortion of reality because you're taking a whole bunch of data points, anywhere from a few to dozens to millions, and you're trying to summarize them with a single number, right? It, it, you know, that can be useful, but it can also lead to a distortion. I think people need to know. The next time you see an average, ask yourself, um, is it reasonable to take an average of this thing? Or could it be that we're combining apples and oranges or testicles and ovaries in this case, right? I mean, yes, on average, humans have one testicle, but that's that's not really a well-formed way to summarize the human race. In a real sense, even with the simple statistics, one of the things you're asking is, first of all, look at the data. What is the data that they're looking at? And what kinds of things about that data are important to see? 
Exactly. And I, I mean, there, there are some fundamental things you can ask, such as, are we comparing apples and oranges? Is it a, a fair comparison? Especially when we're dealing with averages. Just to take another example, suppose you're a salesperson uh, or you know, you're a real estate agent or you're, um, you're a stockbroker and you hear that there's a room over here. And in that room, the average uh, wealth of people in the room is $5 billion each. Now you're thinking, oh, I got to get in there. But what if the room has <laughs> My peeps to sell things to? <laughs> right. What if the room has Warren Buffett and 19 homeless people? Not all homeless people are poor, of course. Again, you don't want to make any assumptions or jump to conclusions. But let's say that this particular group of 19 homeless people have a net worth of zero, and you got Warren Buffett, who knows what his net worth is. The average wealth in that room is very high, but. I'm not sure that's a meaningful summary. You're comparing two different groups. It'd be like telling me the average height of a room full of NBA players and five-year-olds. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. A neuroscientist, musician, and record producer, you might also remember him from one of his earlier books, including This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Stuart Campbell, the CEO of Axial Therapeutics. They're utilizing the three paths which connect our guts and our brains, and their drugs are looking to relieve autism-related irritability in teenagers to address Parkinson's and to make the latest cancer treatments more effective. Then, how Shao T Pharma is working to turn all the latest biopharmaceuticals, which often must be taken by IV, into pills. First up in their clinical trials, type 2 diabetes and obesity, and two pulmonary and cardiovascular disorders. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Stuart Campbell. Well, Stuart, welcome to the program. Hi, Moira. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for hosting. I'd like to start with the underlying science, which came out of the Caltech lab of your co-founder, Professor Sarkis Masmanian. I understand that there are three ways that our microbiome, that's the microbes in our gut, are interconnected with our brain. This is this so-called microbiome gut-brain axis. What are these three paths? Sure. So if we think about the microbes, particularly bacteria that live in our gut, there are trillions of them, and they communicate with our brain in, as you say, three different ways. The first way is a direct communication between nerves that surround the gut 
called the enteric nervous system. They're connected to this thing called the vagus nerve. It's one of the biggest nerves in our body. And uh, the gut microbes. So they can talk to each other uh, nearly directly simply by being so closely associated with one another. A second way is that bacteria produce certain substances we call metabolites that are free-floating. They enter the bloodstream and from the gut in much the same way nutrients would enter the bloodstream from our gut. And they can circulate throughout our body and get to the brain. And, and I want to say that it's some of the bacterial metabolites that get into our blood, not all of them. So some of them are influencing uh, brain activity in relevant ways. And the third way is through the microbes' education and influence on our immune system. So our immune system builds up over many years, in large part based on how our body sees bacteria and other microbes in our gut. So what does this mean for medical conditions which we associate with the brain, you know, like Parkinson's as an example. Sure. So Parkinson's is actually what we believe is that Parkinson's can be impacted by gut bacteria in a way that involves this vagus nerve system. So the first pathway that we discussed in that bacteria can produce proteins that look a lot like some of the misfolded proteins that we often associate with neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and ALS. And we happen to be working uh, most on Parkinson's at the moment because we've identified a bacterial product, a protein in this case, that looks like a misfolded protein and can actually enhance the misfolding of the problematic protein in the case of Parkinson's, a protein called alpha-synuclein. And it can accelerate, we believe it can accelerate the progression of Parkinson's disease. Talk about a bad companion. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Now, now, can you see that in the gut? We can, but we typically would look for that in somebody's uh, stool sample. So it, it tends to be excreted in stool samples, and we can look at it in that way. So you also do something with autism. I'm not totally sure how that figures in. So autism is a good example of the second avenue of communication between the gut and the brain, This using so-called metabolite uh, communication. So we've identified metabolites from certain bacteria that can enter our bloodstream. And we've shown in mouse studies that these metabolites can get into the blood, enter the brain, and change brain cell populations in a way that we can associate with certain behavioral changes. And in the context of autism, some of the challenges that people with autism have, especially when they're younger, is something called irritability. And uh, in that case, we've associated a particular set of metabolites from bacteria with things like irritability and anxiety. Well, before we go there, let me get the premise straight here. Are your drugs trying to target these microbes in the, in the gut? I mean, are they, you're trying to stop them? You're trying to enhance them? What are we talking about? 
Yeah. So it, our drugs are not trying to stop the microbes directly because microbes are very resourceful. The community in our gut is very complex. There's a lot of redundancy in what they can do. So rather than try to target the microbes directly, for example, like you would with an antibiotic, we're not doing that. We are trying to take out the metabolites after they're produced, no matter who produces them in the gut. So that's what our drugs are trying to uh, target in the case of, of autism. But it's different for Parkinson's. In Parkinson's, we're actually trying to stop that protein that's produced by the microbes. We're trying to stop that from being produced in the first place. Okay, so you've got a lot of stuff going on here, but it's targeting those things in the gut, the microbiome that lives there. Exactly. And let's talk about autism. You were saying the autism-associated irritability. What is that? So irritability, it, it, if, if we ask anyone on the street about irritability, they might define it as somebody who's on edge or impatient with somebody. That's not what we're talking about here. In the context of autism, irritability is very overt behavior such as self-injury, tantrums, outbursts, destruction of property, and they often need you know, to self-isolate. Uh, so it actually is a very serious problem for much of the autism community, not everybody, of course, but there's a large percentage of the autism community that does have this irritability uh, challenge, and it impacts their quality of life. If you're, if you're prone to outbursts and uh, self-injury, you might not do as well in school if you can go to school at all. And so we think that these are very important features that often co-occur with autism that we would like to address so that we can have these people with autism be more fully participating in society the way that we would hope they would be. Now, I know you're working with teenagers in Australia, New Zealand, in addition to the United States, and your first, your initial trial had 30 kids over eight weeks. Tell us what they did, how they took what medications, how did this work? Sure. So we have a drug, we call it AB2004. We'll give it a, a real name at some point. And we, it, this is a powder. So it's a powder that they mix with food. And when they eat the food, the drug travels through their gut. And as it travels through the gut, it picks up these metabolites that we're trying to reduce, much like a sponge would so soak something up. And then they pass the drug in their stool. So the drug never enters their, their blood or their circulation at all. And so they would take this for eight weeks, as you said, in the first study, and we started at a very low dose, and it was three times a day with small amounts of food, whatever food they, they want. And after two weeks and four weeks, we would up the dose if they were tolerating the drug very well. And in this case, they did. So everybody made it to the top dose. And we measured several things. We wanted to first establish that the drug was safe and well-tolerated, and it certainly was. It had a very nice safety profile. We were really happy to see that. That's really important for kids with autism. Uh, we want to make sure any treatment they get is, is very safe. 
But in addition to that, we wanted to understand if this whole idea of soaking up these metabolites in the gut, would we actually see a reduction of the levels in the blood? And we did. We saw significant reductions. And then the next question was, now that we've reduced those metabolites, does it have any impact on behavior at all? And we did see several signals of behavioral changes during treatment. And the treatment was a total of eight weeks. And then we had a four-week, what we call a follow-up period, where we, they stopped the drug, and then we looked at them again in the same ways a month later. And what we found was that the metabolite levels in the blood had rebounded all the way back to where they were when they started, which we would have expected. So we take the drug away, the sponge goes away, and the, the metabolites come back up. And what we saw was some of the behaviors started to revert back to what they were before they started the treatment. So we really felt like we were, by moving these metabolite levels down and then up, and we were sort of tracking the behaviors along the way, that, that gave us confidence that we might actually be doing something useful here and the drug may actually be working the way we want. And so we were, that motivated us to, to really continue the effort to understand whether this was going to be an effective treatment or not. And that's where we are now. Obviously, the teenagers themselves can't report the changes in their behavior. Who's observing that? It's, uh, it's usually the parents or the caregivers and the doctors. So they would come into the office and the doctors are trained to assess uh, the kids in many ways. But some of the other assessments we did were what we call parent reported outcomes. So the parents would get these questionnaires and surveys and they'd be asked about all kinds of aspects of their uh, behavior over a certain period of time. And those are well-established surveys that one can use in the context of a clinical trial to determine whether uh, there's a change occurring or not. And moving scores in a survey is one thing. And that's, of course, what we need to be able to report to the regulatory agencies to, to keep going. But maybe what's more relevant to the families and the, and the, and the affected individuals is whether it means anything to them and their quality of life. And when we, when we asked parents for that kind of feedback during the trial, we had several really encouraging stories that uh, came from the families themselves. And one in, that comes to mind in particular was there was one child, a teenager, whose parents still had to bathe him on a regular basis. He would not bathe himself. Uh, and the one of the parents one night heard the water running and went up to find that their son had taken a shower on his own for the first time. And they had never seen any kind of behavior like this. And this happened while the, the, the child was on, on our treatment. Um, another one uh, was another child was a severe germaphobe. So he would not eat food unless it was prepared in front of him. And while on our trial, the family was able to go to a restaurant for the first time and the child ordered food off the menu and ate the food. And this had never happened to them before. So when you hear stories like that, you realize that there's perhaps the chance that something like this could really make a meaningful difference in, in not just 
the affected individual's quality of life, but the entire family that has to spend so much effort caring for this individual. Now, your current study, 200 teenagers, how is it different and where does this get you in drug, in toward drug approval? Well, the current study, as you mentioned, it's much larger than the first study. The, the first study was 30 kids. This one's about 200. So um, we will get a lot better look at what the drug is actually doing. We are also comparing it to a placebo group, which we did not in the first study. And so this is a real litmus test for something like this. Anytime you're measuring behavior, you have to have uh, be conscious of a placebo effect. And so we've incorporated a placebo group in this. And when we complete this study, assuming it, it reads out in a, in a positive way, that would put us in a position to move on to, we believe, what we call pivotal trials or the, or the trials that, that someone like FDA would look at and say, yes or no, you can or cannot register this product for, um, for the patients in the broader population. Now, we're talking about, in this case, something that you, you a powder you take in, goes in through your stomach and to your gut, does its thing exits your system. It's not like taking a pill that has to break down, get into all your tissues or the target somewhere in your system. Is this easier to get through the FDA or not? Um, I think that the FDA will look at every individual case based on the merits of how well it works versus how safe it is. We believe that our drug will have an excellent safety profile because it does not actually get into your system and all your tissues. And so we, we think that this gives us the potential for minimal side effect profile, which unfortunately for a lot of the drugs that are out there are antipsychotic medications or you know, anti-anxiety medications, which can, they work, but they, they often have some undesirable side effects, which can can be a challenge. Well, that actually is part of my next question. Before we go to the Parkinson's, you know, what are the advantages of dealing with targeting the microbiome uh, and the challenges of it? So the benefits, we believe, are that we're targeting a very specific location essentially a passenger or its product that, that's on board with us. So we don't need to get the blood, uh, the, the drug. We don't need to get the drug to the brain in order for it to work. It's working locally in the gut. We think this is actually a huge advantage because it, it does give us, I think, the promise of a better safety profile. Some of the challenges with this are that we're targeting something in the gut with the hope that it will modify something in the brain. And as we talked about, there's a lot going on between the gut and the brain that we have to understand. And we're just starting to understand in detail how the gut and the brain connect to one another. So there are some unresolved scientific questions that may pose challenges to us in unexpected ways. And we're continuing to do the rigorous science to address those 
those challenges. Uh, but it will be a work in progress, but we're acting on the best information that we have at the moment. Now, are you still enrolling for this 200 teenager autism irritability study? Yes, we are. It's actively recruiting in the U.S., Australia, New Zealand. And if you want to learn more, if you have a child aged 13 to 17 who has autism and is challenged with irritability, please go visit theautismstudy.com if you want to learn more about where the trial is being conducted. Now let's get on to Parkinson's. There's a lot to Parkinson's. It lasts a long time. There are many aspects to it. What are you trying to do in the Parkinson's area? And how is this different from your drug to treat autism-associated irritability? Well, you're right. Parkinson's is a a progressive neurodegenerative disease that, that takes years or decades for it to work through its course. Uh, in some people, it's faster than, than others. Um, the, the approach that we're taking here is that there's a protein or a class of proteins that bacteria in our gut can produce that we think can both instigate and perpetuate or accelerate that neurodegeneration process. And so if we think about that, most of the treatments that are approved for Parkinson's disease treat the symptoms, the the motor symptoms that we associate typically with Parkinson's disease, but they don't address the underlying disease process itself. We believe that our approach will target the underlying disease process so that over the long term, the disease may either progress more slowly or even better, stop progressing. That's kind of our our dream scenario is that we're able to stop progression entirely. But I think a more realistic goal at this stage is to slow down progression so that somebody may wait a much longer period of time before they have to go on uh, levodopa type therapies and things like that. So, um, it's a what we call a disease progression uh, drug or disease modifying drug because we're targeting the underlying thing that causes and, and makes the disease worse. Now, this is not about removing metabolites from the gut. What is it about? So the, this protein that the bacteria produce, we want to block that protein from working with or entering the, the human tissue uh, and, and perpetuating this process. Our drug will inhibit or block this bacterial protein that we believe is accelerating and perpetuating the disease process. So it's not a metabolite modifier or a metabolite sponge it's actually a more traditional type of drug. It just doesn't work inside the tissues of the body. It works inside the gut by targeting this protein that the bacteria produce. And you're in phase one? Where are you with this? We, this is still in, in what we call preclinical. So it, we expect it to enter clinical trials in about another year and a half to two years. So another by late next year. 
I'm speaking with Dr. Stuart Campbell, CEO of Axial Therapeutics. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, how do we turn the latest drugs, which must be administered by IV, into a simple pill? We'll talk about how one company is approaching this challenge. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Dr. Stuart Campbell, CEO of Axial Therapeutics. Now we get to one that I don't quite get because I don't always associate it as a problem with the brain. Um, you're also working on cancer. How does that fit in? We we are working on cancer, and it, it, the the connection may not be obvious as you, as you uh, intimated, but. Um, What's really interesting is there's this new, relatively new class of drugs. We You hear the term immunotherapy or immuno-oncology therapy, things like Keytruda, for example. These are drugs that work with the body's immune system to keep tumors at bay or to eliminate tumors. And these were highly touted to be the somewhat of a miracle drug, and they are in many cases. I mean, they, the the people who respond to these see terrific benefit, but not everybody responds to these as we would expect. And what not, has not been entirely clear is why certain people respond to these drugs and some don't. And there's been a body of work, not Axial or uh, Caltech's work. This is work that's been done at several world-leading labs that have shown that the composition of somebody's gut microbiome can actually impact whether they respond to a drug like Keytruda or not, or if they do, how well they respond. And the key there is the immune system, which is that third avenue that we talked about, the way the gut and the brain communicate, 
It's the immune system. So logic would tell us that if gut microbes can influence the immune system and drugs like Keytruda need a properly tuned immune system to work, why can't we use the microbes or what the microbes are doing to help make these types of drugs better? And that's how we're approaching it. Well, let me get this straight. So it's the microbiome gut-brain axis. The, the gut is the microbiome. Your gut is related to the brain, can get back and forth to the brain, interconnected, one way through your immune system, one way through metabolites in your blood, and a third way through this vagus nerve, which runs all the way from your, your neck up here near my ear. I'm pointing on the radio. We love this. All the way down <laughs> through your body. Those are the three ways. And, and that's, those are the areas you're all working in, but you're focusing what you're doing in and out of the gut. Correct. That's right. It just seems so easy when I said it like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's decades of, of, of work on the part of thousands of scientists that get you to that point. And, and we're forever grateful for, for all those efforts. And we continue to try to contribute to those as well. Well, Stuart, thank you so much. I do hope you'll come back and keep us updated. Thank you for having me. Dr. Stuart Campbell is the CEO of Axial Therapeutics. More information is available on the web at axialtx.com. That's Axial, A-X-I-A-L, axialtx.com. More information about the autism-related irritability study in teenagers is available at theautismstudy.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Many drugs are exclusively delivered by injection. Some often new biopharmaceuticals, must be delivered via IV. And this can take hours to administer to the patient. What if those drugs could be delivered in a simple pill? And what would that mean worldwide for improving global health? Dr. Ray Stevens is the CEO of Shouty Pharma, which is currently working on addressing type 2 diabetes and obesity, as well as two different drugs, for pulmonary and cardiovascular conditions. Well, Ray, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maura. It's fantastic to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Biotech drugs are known by many names, you know, biopharmaceuticals, bio, biologics, or as CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta calls them, IV drugs, because the molecules, which are the drug, are so large that they can't be made into pills. They often have to be delivered by IV. Why can't they be made into pills? The biggest reason is if you took them as pills orally and they got into your stomach, our stomachs are able to degrade them the way we degrade food. But why can't they with the small pills like, you know, antibiotics or aspirin or anything else we take? Antibiotics, aspirin, small molecules, what we refer to them as, is they're able to go into your stomach and then they very quickly diffuse into your, your whole body. They don't get degraded by the same mechanism that we have in our stomach that degrades our food. 
So we send in these large molecules and the stomach goes, oh boy, these look good to eat too. <laughs> and, and they're degrade. They have to be all together. It all has to work. The large uh, molecule has to be intact to actually deliver the drug. Absolutely. That's correct. Yes. We are so grateful for these drugs uh, that they've become available, but it's really a challenge for people taking them. Absolutely. These biologics have revolutionized healthcare. You think about Remicade, Humira, Keytruda. You think about our COVID vaccines uh, as well. Um, they've saved lives, and, and there's no question about that. But the fact is, many of these medicines are only available to 40% of the world for a variety of reasons, you know, not just the cost of goods, but you know, these molecules also, they have to be stored cold uh, in order to survive. They're very unstable. And this is one of the reasons why you take them IV or you get the injection uh, so that it goes straight into the body. If we were to take these large molecules, these biologics, and swallow them, our body has evolved a great mechanism to degrade food so we get the nutrients from it. It'll do the same thing to these biologics. And so this has really been the challenge of how can we convert these great biologics medicines that have revolutionized healthcare, and is there an opportunity to be able to convert them to a small oral pill that can help be accessible to everybody in the world? Well, do we need all of that large molecule to be effective? I mean, how can we make it smaller, small enough to be in a pill? Yeah, it's a really good question. The, the answer is no. We, we do not need most of the mass of these big biologics. In fact, if you, you know, we use a technique called cryo-electron microscopy. It's a microscope that allows us to see the individual atoms. We can see how the drug binds inside the human body. And we can see that interaction, and that interaction is only a very small part of the working part of the biologic. Our body is full of receptors all over our, our bodies. And so, you know, you, you, these biologics are targeted to a very specific receptor in the body or receptacle in the body. And so it searches for that, and then it has a function uh, once it binds to that particular target inside the body. Since it's so specific, if you can figure out how to bind it, you might not need the whole molecule. That, that's exactly correct. And so that's why we use microscope to be able to see the individual atoms. And we figure out what is that smallest possible object that will have the same function. In fact, you know, we, we believe that it has better function because it's able to go through the body faster, more efficiently and be able to take it orally so patients, um, there'll be better patient compliance, um, that would be a much better therapeutic. Now, I understand that you use facial recognition software to figure this out. And I always think of the basic facial recognition software is that uh, there was a famous Super Bowl once that everybody that came through, they took a picture of and they they matched it to a database of, of known felons. <laughs> they had a number of visits to seats and arrests during that particular Super Bowl. But um, it, it was pretty amazing. So they had a whole list of those, and they were taking one picture at a time. This is kind of different. You have a picture of, of something binding to a cell, which is the basic drug. How do you figure out what, in fact, in this large molecule 
is is actually binding. It, it's actually the same exact thing. It's the same software. So you use the analogy of you have a crowd of people and you're looking for a specific face. Well, we look in the test tube and we can see these molecules using the microscope. So the new microscopes that only came out about six years ago, that was one big breakthrough. But when that was then combined with facial recognition technology, where we can look in the microscope and we can see all the different protein molecules at the atomic level, we can see those and we can add them together and we can start to put together essentially a movie of how the molecules are interacting with each other, how they come together, how they come apart, which part of the surface is most important for triggering function. So facial recognition technology combined with the microscopes have revolutionized structural biology and the entire biology biology field. So you have a bunch of test tubes here, each one maybe a different set of parts of this large molecule, just to try to get it down and say, hey, is it doing it? Is it doing it? Is it doing it? Is that how it works? Absolutely. So what we do is we, we put the, the receptor in the body, we put that in all the different test tubes. And then we will have the, the biologic will be in one test tube combined with it. And we'll look at that and we'll see that interaction. And then we'll design drug candidates, molecules that we think will mimic the same function, but be much, much smaller, maybe one one thousandth of the size. And we'll then put that, all these different test molecules in other test tubes, and we'll get those interactions. And we'll see which one mimics the function, the binding and the activation. That tells us, that guides us to how to build the best possible and safest drug molecule. Well, I love the vision of, we have a new microscope. We're all going to look down and see what we can see. There's so much data there. There's so much information. The human eye isn't detecting what, what works and what doesn't work, does it? And that's exactly the problem. Before we had the facial recognition technology, we used to, I'm a practitioner in the field, we used to physically look in the microscope and we couldn't absorb enough. We would look at maybe 10 images, maybe 100 images if we worked really hard. But the computer, we can just tell com the computer, find me this object in this test tube. And it will literally, within minutes, find 3 million images that look like that. And, and what's even better is the computer can very accurately determine how they might be slightly different each time. And so that's why I say it puts together a movie. We get we get to see different, the different faces, the different orientations as the protein molecule or in your facial recognition in the crowd analogy goes, we can get the three-dimensional representation of the human being or in our case, the protein molecule. And so you actually come up with a number of candidates and then you start narrowing it down even more. Absolutely. And, and one of the big you know, breakthroughs, again, you know, this, this really started about six or seven years ago with cryo-electron microscopy, facial recognition. It has accelerated our ability to be able to collect this type of data and to design these medicines faster and faster. Now, that's a really good point. I mean, these days we say it takes 12 to 15 years to get from the lab bench to a commercially ready, approved product. Do you think things like this will make it shorter? Um, sadly, not immediately. And the reason why I say that is the slowest step in the process, in, and it's an incredibly important step, is safety trials. You have to make sure these molecules are safe. 
And, and those safety trials and efficacy trials do take time. Now, where this technology is really accelerating things is in the discovery of the molecules. So when we go from an idea to a molecule that we're excited about, we can do that faster. We can, we can shave a year off of a two-year timeline. So we can do it in half the amount of time. But safety studies still take, still take longer. And it's really important to do those safety studies because the last thing that we want to do is, is harm, harm a human. Now, you're now taking biologics which have been approved. These are biopharmaceuticals which are on the market. The FDA has accepted all of them. Um, so you don't have to go through that it works. You just have to go through that it works as well. Is that shorter or no? Absolutely. So, so that, another, another very good point. So the answer is yes, we are able to go through shorter because the FDA has acknowledged this is, this is a, a very good mechanism of action for treating a certain disease. And so the target, as you said, is validated. What we're able to do is replace that biologic with a small molecule. We have to do the comparison to make sure that it's at least as good as, but you know, we believe, and we're seeing this already, it's in fact better because it's an oral pill. You get better patient compliance because it has better stability. You don't have to keep this you know, in a refrigerator or a freezer. It has better uh, pharmaceutics properties, which means it will absorb in your body and move around faster, give you a quicker effect. So all of these things add up to, it's not only as good as what's already been validated, but it's actually a better therapeutic. When you do anything like this, you got to come up with some initial candidates. Okay, we're just going to go after this particular disease or this very small sector to make sure it works. You've got to start there. And you've started in three areas. Uh, let's start out with uh, diabetes and weight loss. We're very familiar with diabetes. We, I think we all have friends or family that have injectables and, and are testing their, their diabetes, their levels. Um, what are you doing there? Yeah, so when we thought about our, our platform and being able to replace biologics with small molecules, we asked ourselves, this is a very powerful platform and this technology can be very helpful. Where do we want to focus the therapeutic area? And we asked ourselves, what is the biggest um, global impact we can have? What, what diseases really affect the world the most? And you know, we thought about this very carefully and we came up with the list. Diabetes and obesity is, is becoming one of the biggest killers in the world. Cardiovascular is another one. Pulmonary, lung disease is another one. So we prioritized those three, but diabetes was one that we started first. One, because we had particular expertise in this area. Uh, second, we thought this is where we could make a really big impact. We've, you know, my, my metric of success for the company is really the number of patients that we can help treat. And so the old McDonald's sign of, you know, served a billion hamburgers, that's what I have in my head. I really want to measure our success by how many patients we can help in diabetes and obesity is, is a really growing problem globally. So in this case of diabetes, instead of organizing your injections and how much insulin to take in, 
How does that work in terms of a pill? The traditional way that you treat diabetes is you will take insulin. The next generation of molecules that you've, you know, we see these commercials now on TV uh, by the names of Tulicity, uh, Ozempic, Ribelsis. These are medicines now that are replacing insulin and there's still injections. Ribelsis is a oral, but it's very complicated. And so what we're able to do is we're able to replace those largely injections, injectable medicines with an orally available small molecule that has the same function. It binds to the same receptor in the body and controls glucose levels. So it has the same mechanism. It's just that it's taken orally. You have to take your medicine daily, but you might be able to take it in one or two pills a day as opposed to injections. A- That's correct. And I understand you're in phase one with the diabetes medicine. That's correct. We just started phase one. This is a project that I've been working on for almost 20 years, studying this family of proteins, studying the interactions of how medicines interact with a particular receptor. We've spent two years uh, developing the specific molecule itself. And so yesterday I was able to see the, the first subject take the first dose of this new medicine. Was it more exciting than you thought it was going to be? Um, it was a combination of relief. Again, we've been working on this for a long time. You worry about lots of things, particularly with COVID these days and trying to do clinical trials. But we're, we're very grateful that people worked incredibly hard uh, at making sure the trial was done safely and, and done well. And so your second drug that you're going after, uh, what's that about? So the other area besides diabetes and obesity that I think is glo- a real uh, chronic disease affecting the world are pulmonary and pulmonary cardiovascular diseases. And again, this is a place where we need to make sure that these medicines that we make available because pulmonary disease is everywhere around the world. Okay. Would we recognize any of the medications that, uh, that you're talking about that treat the symptoms? Vi- Viagra is one of the examples, a PD-5 inhibitor. And, and again, it does a good job of treating the symptoms, but it doesn't treat the disease. And what is the disease? So what happens in your lungs is the tips, your arteries, they become uh, very small, crackly. The arteries can't get the oxygen that you need. And so, and then the heart starts pumping harder and harder. And as it pumps harder and harder, people eventually wind up dying of heart failure. Right now, if you're diagnosed with this disease, you have, I think the current numbers are, you know, a 50% chance of surviving a few years because your heart just keeps pumping harder and harder and can't keep up to get that oxygen. And what does this drug do? So what this medicine does is it's able to increase the cardiac output, the flow, but it's also able to help with uh, what we call anti-remodeling. It allows the arteries to be able to get more of that oxygen coming in. And then you have another one, a third one uh, along the line here, uh, something called IPF. What's that? Yeah, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Essentially, your lungs, fibers, um, it becomes fibrous. And, and this can happen for a variety of reasons, um, but the, it'll ultimately lead to diseases, including cancer. And so what we want to be able to do is to try to be able to treat IPF uh, in order to, so that your lungs, again, so that your lungs can function properly and get all the oxygen that it needs. Everything you've said 
applies to everyone in the world, it seems, every population. And yet, you know, as I look at this, these, these biopharmaceuticals, these biologics are very expensive. And they're really mostly in very economically advantaged countries. So the answer here is by making them into pills in the pill form, uh, they'll be far more affordable. That, that's, that's correct. That's our motivation. That's what gets me up every morning and why I'm so excited about what we're doing is we want to make these medicines accessible to everybody because everybody is you know, having to deal with obesity, diabetes, pulmonary disease, cardiovascular disease. So it's really important to, to focus in these areas. Now, Ray, I want to ask you this. Uh, all, you've, you've mentioned a lot of very successful drugs, very, very profitable drugs, um, and they're covered by patents. How are you able to go in and try to make a small molecule drug, a pill out of them? You're absolutely correct. They have the companies that generate these biologics have patented those large molecules. What we're studying, we're discovering new small molecules that are only a small portion that mimic and have the same function in the body. But in fact, we also design in enhanced properties as well. So they're completely novel. They're brand new. They didn't exist before in nature. So you get the patent on the small molecule and it doesn't interfere with their patent. That's correct. Now, your company has offices in both the U.S. and South San Francisco, big biocluster, and in Shanghai. So is this an American company? Is this a Chinese company? What is it? We, we view ourselves as a global company. We're incorporated in the Cayman Islands. We have our finance and clinical is run out of South San Francisco. Our early discovery and discovery is placed in Shanghai with access to the contract research organizations. So we run very efficiently. And one of the reasons for that is talent. One of the most challenging parts, I think, of this industry is talent. And so we go where there's talent. Now, who owns the company? We, we have international investors. Uh, we're, I think we're approximately 60% U.S. investors, but we have investors from all over the world. This is a very interesting economic proposition because if you are able to make these small molecules successfully and then sell them very cheaply uh, to, you know, to countries all over the world uh, that need these drugs desperately, uh, it really upsets the whole global bioeconomy, the biopharmaceutical economy. No, I don't think so. Not only are we trying to replace these biologics, but we're trying to make them best in class. We're trying to make them better than the biologics themselves. And, and that's why we, we stress many of the features of an orally available pill versus a biologic. So we focus on best in class as, as a requirement uh, for us. You know, you mentioned earlier, you've been working on this for 20 years. What motivated you? You know, so I'm a chemist deep down. That's my you know, what I went to college for, and I really enjoy it. Uh, I've always enjoyed, I wanted to go into as a chemist, how can I make medicines to help other people? But about 14 years ago, um, my daughter, she was four years old at the time, uh, we were living in San Diego, and she came down, got diagnosed with a disease called Kawasaki's disease. This is a disease that, that affects very young children. 
and we still don't understand exactly what causes it. But when you have this disease, essentially what's happening is your immune system finds your circulatory system foreign. And when you have that battle between your immune system and your circulatory system, it causes damage to organs like the heart. Uh, it's, you know, this, uh, you know, young children can die from this. And so we were asked, we were in the emergency room. You know, my doc, the doctor said, you know, there's a phase two trial that's being done right now with Remicade, a biologic, and said, you know, would you be willing to put her on, you know, this phase two clinical trial? It saved her life. My daughter, who is now alive and very well, um, and now a freshman in college, um, she's alive because Remicade saved her life. That had a really big impact. That's part of what motivates me all the time. But the other thing that I thought about, you know, a few years ago from that experience was my daughter's lucky. We're lucky. You know, we were living in San Diego. There happened to be a, a center that recognized this disease and had this medicine available. You know, what if she was a child in another country or in the country of the United States? Again, my home state of Maine, somebody up north, they probably wouldn't have had access to this medicine. And, and I, I don't even want to think about the consequences of what would have happened there. So biologics saved my daughter's life. And I'm grateful for that. It's revolutionized healthcare. But these biologics need to be these. We need to make our medicines accessible to everybody in the world, um, not just those that can afford them or not just those that happen to live in, in nice, you know, particular places. Well, Ray, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again. Tell us how it's going. I would be absolutely honored, Mara. Thank you so much. Dr. Ray Stevens is the CEO of Shouty Pharma with headquarters in the Cayman Islands and offices in South San Francisco and Shanghai, China. More information is on the web at shoutypharma.com. That's Shouty, S-H-O-U-T-I, pharma.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.